0: New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman is resigning as the state's highest law enforcement official. Schneiderman announced his resignation just hours after a magazine article in which four women accused him of physical violence. Schneiderman said in a statement, While these allegations are unrelated to my professional conduct or the operations of the office, they will effectively prevent me from leading the office's work at this critical time. Joining me is Bloomberg News legal investigative reporter Greg Farrell. Greg, tell us about the allegations from these four women. Broadly.
1: Um, Basically, uh, each of them uh, tells a variance of the same story, that they had an intimate relationship with Schneiderman and that at certain points he struck them, slapped them very hard across the face, uh, in more than one case uh, choked, you know, one or several of the women to the point where, you know. They felt that they had trouble breathing, um, left marks on their faces to the to the effect that these women would go and share details with friends to um, to corroborate them. Um, and also just a, a like a power relationship, uh, treating them in demeaning fashion, um, forcing them to drink more than they would drink. Alcohol is at the center of a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of these scenes.
0: Yeah. Now. This came as a shock to many people, uh, especially after Schneiderman's legislative and legal advocacy for women's rights, his support of the Me Too movement. Were there any hints about this before the story was published in the um, New Yorker?
1: No, and it's clear from the New Yorker article. Uh, which did an amazing level of reporting on this, that this didn't just come out yesterday. I think the office there has had at least a week, I'm guessing, you know, the back and forth uh, on this. Um, It is amazing that nothing like this had come out before. And ironically, it was the Me Too movement. I think a number of these women who thought they were individual and this only happened to them and maybe questioned or had self-doubt about what their role might have been in this, um, once a couple of them got together and realized it was more than one woman, and then hearing the former attorney general will speak on at some length about women's rights and Me Too and the importance of uh, treating women with respect, that they, you know, it spilled over to the point where two of the four women referenced in the story were willing to go on the record with their names.
0: Now, first, Schneiderman was investigating Manhattan DA Cy Vance Jr. Now Cy Vance Jr. is investigating Eric Schneiderman. I want to say only in New York, but I think this would happen... Anywhere right is, now, uh,
1: like only in New York, it's almost comical. It's not comical, but it's almost comical. The and uh, it, to some extent, this is not the not Vance's investigation of Schneiderman's conduct that falls. Well, we'll get to that in a second. First of all, the fact that Governor Cuomo recommended and referred the um, uh, Vance's you know lack of prosecution or lack of action against Harvey Weinstein a few years ago. Is strange. I'm not sure if there's any legal basis for one constitutional officer, the governor, ordering another constitutional officer, the AG, to investigate a third constitutional office, the, the, the Manhattan District Attorney. Um, you might disagree with Cy Vance's judgments on things like the Weinstein case, but uh, in 2015, but that's his prerogative. Yeah, he I mean, said
0: there wasn't enough to said, have a and prosecution, maybe, and maybe
1: he's wrong. But that's sort of what you know: prosecutors you know, run, get elected for, and if you're unhappy with them, you don't vote for them next time. But to go and sick you know the attorney general uh, on that without some uh, real reason just seems strange. So anyway, yes. Um, now the conduct here, uh, this is for Cy Vance, This seems like a a loser. I mean, if his office finds like some you know uh, you know grounds to you know misdemeanor or felony uh, you know charges against Schneiderman, it'll look like. Political payback, so that's bad. Two, if they don't find anything, it'll look bad, like he's weak and he's not doing anything. You know, uh, you know, like like what happened with Dominique Strauss-Kahn and like what happened with Weinstein a few years ago. So this is, I'm sure, something that Simeone is not like, like lose, looking lose. forward to. Yeah, exactly.
0: Now. Snyderman has gotten national recognition for the role he's played in resisting Trump administration policies from environment to immigration. But he was also seen as someone who would might step in if the president pardoned people close to him like Paul Manafort. And last month he even asked lawmakers to change the state's double jeopardy law to exempt presidential pardons. Is there concern that those efforts and that role will be abandoned?
1: I'm not. No, I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't jump to that conclusion immediately for a couple of reasons. One, this is still very much a blue state, and whoever replaces Schneiderman is going to be some from the same political background uh, as Schneiderman. It does sort of disrupt. I mean, Schneiderman did establish himself as a. He was, gladly played the role of foil to President Trump and antagonist to President Trump. So whether or not his successor, you know, relishes the same sort of uh, role, that remains to be seen. However. Schneiderman's not the only actor in this case. Again, going back to Cy Vance, Cy Vance's office is also looking into conduct related to, you know, people around Trump as sort of a and none of them are stepping on special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, but I think it's clear that they're ready and waiting so that if something happens to Mueller or pardons, you know, blanket pardons are issued in these cases, that you know, state regulators, state, you know, actors in New York can go ahead and take action.
0: So now we're going to have a real election for uh, New York Attorney General because he was the overwhelming favorite before. What names are being mentioned for the Democratic nominee there?
1: A few of the names we've heard include Kathleen Rice, And uh, I think Letitia James. um, So clearly several women's names have been put forward. And given what happened to Governor Spitzer a decade ago and now this, it clearly makes sense that, you know, having a woman in that position would be a very good move politically. So those are some of the names. However, um, there's a – this is an interesting political dilemma or at least a political situation in Albany they have a chance now in Albany to designate someone to, you know, serve as attorney general until the election in right. November. Um, I think the hope is they'll find someone who can then be the overwhelming favorite and keep the job. In other words, basically sliding someone in. And, if, and politically, uh, they don't want someone who'd be too tough or go after corruption in Albany. That that's, uh,
0: that's for another show. Thank you so much, Greg. As always, that's Bloomberg News legal investigative reporter Greg Farrell. Gina Haspel spent three decades working in secret, but now the lifelong spy will be making a very public appearance. She'll be grilled about her secretive work by the Senate Intelligence Committee at her confirmation hearing to become CIA director. Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said the White House is backing Haspel. Acting Director Haspel is a highly qualified, uh, uniquely positioned individual to lead the CIA, and we're very confident in her ability to answer the questions that we know are going to come. The focus of the hearings is expected to be on Haspel's involvement in alleged torture programs and her role in destroying videotapes of interrogations of detainees. Joining me is Stephen Vladek, professor at the University of Texas School of Law and co-editor-in-chief of Just Security. Steve, you wrote a piece in Just Security entitled The Haspel Nomination as a Referendum on Unaccountability. Will you explain why there have been no legal remedies in cases of the torture of U.S. detainees?
2: Sure. I mean, I think, you know, plaintiffs who have tried to sue the U.S. government directly, U.S. government officers, even U.S. government contractors, based on claims that they were tortured while in U.S. custody, have generally had those cases thrown out for a wide range of procedural reasons. to none of which have to do with the merits. In none of these cases, did the government, did the court rule that these plaintiffs weren't tortured. In all these cases, the court said there was some obstacle, whether the absence of a cause of action or whether the possibility that the government defendant might have qualified immunity that would prevent the courts from even deciding the question of whether torture happened and whether these plaintiffs were abused. And so collectively, we've gotten to 2018, you know, 16 years after this program started, with not a single judicial ruling holding one way or the other that abuses that were perpetrated against detainees in U.S. custody after 9-11 were or were not torture.
0: So why do you see Haspel's confirmation hearing as a referendum on government accountability rather than a referendum on Haspel's accountability?
2: Well, I, think, I, mean, I don't think those are mutually exclusive. I, mean, I actually think it's both. But, you know, June, many of these opinions by courts that have said it's not necessarily our place to jump over the political branches have pointed to the far better position that Congress is in when it comes to these kinds of highly classified national security programs, to find out what happened, to make its own judgments, um, and to you know, decide whether and how to punish those responsible. And I think it's worth stressing, one of the ways historically that Congress has exercised its leverage and basically, you know, effected accountability is by refusing to confirm nominees who were involved in prior abusive government programs. So... You know, I think that's why this hearing tomorrow is so interesting, because it's not just about Haskell herself, who I think quite clearly played a very central role in at least some aspects of the CIA rendition, detention interrogation program. It's also about whether the political branches are going to use this process, the confirmation process, to make up for, I think, many of the deficits and shortcomings in how we have tried to create a record of the abuses carried out as part of the detention program since nine eleven. 11 So
0: you have you looked at the way the sides are lining up and whether Haspel is likely to be confirmed?
2: Yeah, you know, I think it's going to be very close. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting is there's a bit of a schism, even on the, the, the sort of pro-Haspel side. You know, there are some folks who are saying, don't hold it against her that she was part of these abuses at a, you know, much different time in our history where I think a lot of, you know, things may have gone wrong. But then you have folks like President Trump, uh, you know, Press Secretary Sanders saying that, you know, Hassel's record and Hassel's involvement in these abuses um, is not, is actually a reason to confirm her. Uh, That is not, that that seems to be confirmed because of her role in those programs, not despite them. Frankly, I don't think that's doing her any favors. And I actually think that, you know, as the press reported last week, there are real concerns about whether there are enough votes and whether she might withdraw um, rather than risk a potential negative vote. So going to be a very interesting hearing to keep an
0: eye on. Let's turn to another subject you've written about. You're very prolific, as we know, Steve. <laughs> it seems like just about the only thing that has remained cons- consistent in the Trump defense recently is the contention that the president doesn't have to comply with a grand jury subpoena to testify. So to borrow the title of your column, can the presidency trump a special counsel subpoena?
2: <laughs> um, yeah, the title's a little wordy. So, I, I, <laughs> I liked it. Fair enough. I think the answer is probably not. I mean, so there's no Supreme Court case squarely on point with regard to whether a president can be compelled to testify before a grand jury, but you know the Supreme Court's come pretty close. So in the Watergate tapes case in 1974, you know an eight to nothing court held that President Nixon could be forced to comply with a subpoena duces tecum for you know specific evidence. In that case, the Watergate tapes. Um, you know in the Clinton versus Jones case in 1997 the Supreme Court expressly rejected the argument that Article 2 of the Constitution generally protects the president from having to bear the burden of litigation, including in that case, you know, showing up for a deposition. So, you know, I, there's no square Supreme Court decision, June, but I do think that if we actually got to a point where the special counsel had a subpoena for a grand jury testimony from the president, um, you know, I think the president would lose if he tried to challenge that in court, at least facially. Now, that's without regard. You know, the president, of course, is free to get on the stand and invoke whatever privileges or immunities he might think he has. Um, among them, perhaps most importantly, his Fifth Amendment right, you know, against self-incrimination. That's a separate matter from whether he can, you know, refuse to comply with the subpoena in the first place.
0: Let me ask you this because I've been cu- curious about this. It seems obvious from everything that Giuliani has said and Trump has said and tweeted that there is not going to be an interview. So, in about a minute. Tell us why Mueller doesn't just serve him with a grand jury subpoena now.
2: So I think, I mean, serving serving the president with a subpoena is, um, is really forcing the issue in a way that the special counsel may not want to or need to do. I think, you know, what the president says and what Rudy Giuliani and other surrogates say on television is one thing. But until and unless Mueller is completely convinced that there's no accommodation to be reached short of a grand jury subpoena, I think it's in his interest, it's in everyone's interest to keep pursuing that accommodation, no matter what the sound bites are on television, will know that those accommodations have failed if and when we get to a moment where Mueller really does actually issue such a subpoena.
0: Well, it's going to be very interesting, particularly with Rudy Giuliani in this, because uh, sometimes whether, whether it's uh, he's pursuing a legal strategy or a, a public relations strategy, more to come. Thanks so much, Steve. Or none of the above. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. That's Stephen Vladek, professor at the University of Texas School of Law and co-editor-in-chief of Just Security. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson.